Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and I'm your host, and your name is Listener, and that's what you do. You listen, and that's really exciting. Um, yeah, what did I, this weekend, I went to the Kids' Choice Awards. Very interesting, very weird, hosted by Nickelodeon, which, as we all know, is my weird alma mater. And, and in, in that respect, I got to say, it felt like a high school reunion, a little bit. You know, you come back, you see your old friends. You know you've been there before, the lockers are the same, and the lunchroom still has that weird smell, and yet, you don't belong there anymore. You know what I mean? And when you were there, it just felt like, you know, that you were a part of the fabric. And now I watch it from the periphery. And I don't mind, I like it. I like revisiting it. It's very interesting, very weird, all those events. Award shows in general. Because be it the Kids' Choice, the Teen Choice, or the goddamn Academy Awards, award shows are bullshit. I mean, they just are. I'm not hating on it. I mean, it was a fine, you know, experience, and I enjoyed it, and I, I, I you know, feel lucky to have been invited and, and included. But I'm just saying, you know, like the whole idea, I always say this, and I'm, I've probably said it on the pod, but the big winners of any award show are the producers, the people who make money from the award show. And to that end, God bless them. Fucking way to go, guys. What a great hack of the system. Like, I just imagine a big board meeting where everyone goes, all right, we're going to create this award. What should we call it? Jim, you got anything? Uh, Oscars? Academy? Uh, we'll say, well, we're the Academy, so we're going to call it the Academy Awards. How about that? <laughs> Jim! I love it. You like that, Stacy? I love it, Dan. I, Jim, you knocked it out of the park with that one. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, they had a meeting. Probably was in the 30s. I don't know how old the Academy Awards are, so everyone probably sounded like this. We gotta get these actors together in one room. We gotta get them to fight it out for this bullshit award, this gold-plated statue that my cousin in the Diamond District's gonna get us a dozen of at a discount. And we're gonna get all these people to buy tickets to this fucking award show. We're gonna leave there rich, guys. This is genius. We're gonna get Greta Garbo and Humphrey Bogart to come. I mean, that's what they're doing. It's just, you know, I don't know. Can there be a competition for art probably not if you liked the green book and i liked i don't know fucking bohemian rhapsody are you better or am i better no not really to be honest i haven't seen either and i don't plan to and i'm sure they're fine movies but i'm very busy i have a child and i'm slightly bitter but that's for a different podcast but yeah i mean you know just award shows in general i find it kooky and weird but you know whatever it was fun it was good to see people it was good to give my good buddy david dobrik an award a kid who i've worked with on youtube for the last two years who is a real friend and also somebody who i uh, who i have a lot of respect for and it's been cool to watch the ascension of this person who you know two and a half three years ago was like in the suburbs of illinois 
sort of making funny videos on social media. And now three years later, he's like on the stage of the award show that he watched as a kid and having this moment and the kids are going nuts for him. And I felt weirdly like proud, like, yeah, it was a sweet moment. So I was happy to be there for that. So in that case, I guess award shows are fine. I don't know. I'm very critical. It's just funny. Like I see behind the guys. I, 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 uh, I presented an award with this actress, Kiernan Shipka, who was lovely. Great person. Loved chatting with her. We have many mutual friends. She was just incredibly charming. I was like, wow, you've got whatever that thing is that people love and like, you know, want to buy tickets to when you're like starring in a movie. You got it. You got it, girlfriend. And I remember she was there and she was talking to, oh, like, B.B. Rexa, who's like a, was a very big pop star. I've heard her music. I couldn't quote one of her songs, but I'm sure they're all good. B.B. Rexa walks in and I guess they knew each other and they start chatting. And I did the move where I just kind of moved over to the side let them talk. I didn't need to be included and I didn't want them to feel the pressure to include me, an outsider who really doesn't know either of them terribly well. And I found it really interesting that Kiernan did this move that was like so lovely and like just great manners where she was like, hey, you, BB Rexer, should meet my friend Josh Peck. And she turns to introduce us and I'm like 20 feet away, <laughs> like perpetual 32-year-old wallflower, flashbacks of high school, you know, just literally hugging the wall as they're talking. And <laughs> and BB, who was like, couldn't have been nicer, was like, hey, do you want to come over and join our conversation? Like, you don't have to stand over there by the wall. And I was like, you know what, BB Rexa, thank you so much, but I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass on that. But I, I really appreciate you wanting to include me. But let's be honest, you shouldn't feel pressure to, you know, inject me into a conversation that I don't belong in. So I'm going to let you two talk and have your moment. And then I'll be over here near the lovely spread of, you know, mini empanadas and uh, uh, kid-sized corn dogs that, uh, that they've got laid out here. Yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting thing. And then, you know, I did this show for many years on Nickelodeon, which is probably why I was there, called Drake and Josh, with my cohort, my companion, the the person who I am synonymous with now and for the rest of my life, Drake Bell, who I love. And I've had um, as close to a brotherly relationship with as I'd probably ever have with anyone, being an only child. But we've, we grew up together and we have a deep love for each other, and we also bicker and sort of do all of the things that brothers do. But that's uh, inevitably what brings us closer. And and I wrote this script, and and I decided that it might be cool for us to do something together again. And you know, as soon as I told Drake, he was about it, and and then we sort of collaborated on the idea and what have you. And, and it's very cool. And 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 it recently kind of went slightly public where people sort of found out that we were shopping around this idea. And so to be at this big award show and to have all like those big sort of tabloid press outlets really pushing hard to like get the scoop was an interesting experience for me because I don't I don't know from that. You know, usually I'm like this C-list sort of person at these things where, you know, you're lucky if anyone um, with a microphone wants to say anything to you ever. 
And then all of a sudden you're there and they're like, oh, I want to talk to you. Come here, please. Let's, let's chop it up. You know, it just how quickly things change. <laughs> um, I, though, did not do any of those. I did one, but I didn't do any the rest because it just felt weird. I just didn't, I don't know. I didn't want to over talk it because if this thing fucking fails and no one buys it or like no one, you know, or like we kind of walk it down the road and then inevitably it doesn't come together. It, that's fucking embarrassing. Like I, I was happy that it got some press, but I wanted to, I wanted to live on its, look, the truth is, is that it's going to come out and be dope, but I don't know why I'm like bullshitting you guys. It's actually, you know, it's all set, but it's like, I wanted to speak for itself and, uh, and be special and to be the anti to what anyone's expecting. And if anyone who didn't watch Drake and Josh can come to the show as a new viewer and appreciate it for what it is, as opposed to having to know like the, the years of the old thing that we did together is sort of like a barrier of entry to get into this new thing. Like if someone completely fresh can appreciate it, well, in that respect, uh, I feel like we will have done our job. So anyway, I should probably stop talking about it because, um... I'm sure I've bored you by now. Anyway, um, on today's show, man, Phil Stutz. Phil Stutz is a brilliant psychiatrist, author, has written books like The Tools. He's sort of renowned for being slightly like, you know, a super high level psychiatrist to people in entertainment and CEOs and powerful, interesting people. A lot of famous actors who have publicly talked about being patients of his, be it, you know, Hank Azaria or Bob Saget or John Stamos, who is weirdly one of my good, good friends. It's not weird. It's just like it's a trip because I never would have expected to be as close as we are. And and he's just turned out to be a gem in my life. And I I just feel so lucky to know him because he's good people. And um, Phil and I met at Bob Saget's wedding, forgive that name drop, and, you know, the fact that I sound like a name-dropping douche, you know? Oh, Josh Peck, you go to Bob Saget's wedding? Where else do you go? You know, uh, Barack Obama's 55th birthday? Yeah, those two things are synonymous. That's where powerful people hang out. Barack Obama's 55th and Saget's wedding. It was actually a gorgeous wedding, really beautiful. And I love his wife, Kelly, and and I love Bob. Um, Guys, I I can't fake it anymore. I'm huge. I'm a huge deal. I can't continue to try to sound like the everyman. I'm not. I'm I'm not. (laughs) Oh, man. Please forgive me. Anyway, (laughs) forgive that that, uh, onslaught of, of douchiness. Nevertheless, I met Phil. He was lovely. I love chatting with him. John had mentioned that he had been seeing Phil for years and, and just how much he had benefited from their relationship. And, and he said, you know, he'd be a great guest for the pod. He was willing to do it. And John actually joined us to be our guest host and, uh, and did an incredible job. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Here is Phil Stutz. This I mean, that's great. how, you know, we were just talking, he just said, like I was saying, I showed him pictures of my kid, and I was like, I just, I can't even explain it. I don't know how to uh, verbalize it. And he said, don't. He said, just have a sense of wonder about it. If you try to figure it out, it, it almost kills it. It almost ruins it. Yeah. That's how simple, that's the, 
that's why I, that's why I love him so much. He's so simple. Well, I remember the, one of the first things he said to me was, "If you weren't so fucking stupid, you'd realize how great you have it." <laughs> I didn't say. Yeah, wouldn't. you did so. I wouldn't talk to you like that. Do you use that language a lot with, with patients? <laughs> no, only with John. Only. <laughs> I mean, it must be a tool in some respect, right, to snap people out of it. Yeah, it's good. it has a little bit of a shock value, yeah. Yeah. But you know what happens? It's like anything else. You start to get a reputation, and then people react to things you haven't, you haven't really done, you know, but they expect you to do them, so they <laughs> think you've done them. Like, everybody thinks I curse out everybody that comes in here. He does. And that's <laughs> He's true. got this laugh, too. One of his clients, do you say who? Because he... he he says it. He does an impression. A lot of people oh, do Oh, Hank, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's Hank Azaria does it. <laughs> really? Because, yeah, he's got this... You'll hear it at some point. Bullshit. <laughs> do you... Uh, it's uh, having famous patients more fun? Um, most of the time it's more fun, but not all the time. There's about a third of them that it's much less fun. I think well, you only sort of take people that are, at this, the last five or ten years, that are not complete batshit. Yeah, right? I mean, I, yeah. Saget. <laughs> yeah he counts no. um, what was the question well like what so for you is it just a different sort of um, type in that respect like is it just oh. a new set of problems Here's the downside of celebs is they expect obviously special treatment mm-hmm. and for, well. for a lot of them no one ever tells them the truth about anything mm. so they, they live in this bubble of their own imagination so, what, are, what are some of the truths you, you, you have to tell these people? You were rude to that person. Yeah. You're too demanding. I can't get you the exact table you want. I can't get you this part. Whatever it is, you know, I can't get you the part because the director hates you. <laughs> you know, people just aren't going to tell them that. Look, most of the people around a celeb are working for the celeb one way or another. Will you talk that directly to them? Uh I'll talk that directly if I think they're open to it and I think they need to hear it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Can I just say, you listeners out there, this is the, a special treat with this guy. This is Phil Stutz, yes. who is one of the premier shrinks of all time. But just, just one of the smartest, most um, intuitive men you'll ever come around. And this is a really special thing. I go to him and... I thought it'd be fun if we were all in here together because I know you wanted to inter, you know, do him. and I've heard him on Marin and stuff, but I think this is a special moment. I want to hear how you guys met, but just a quick follow-up to what you just said. is There's got to be a specific relationship in the sense of if you were just seeing Fred the dentist, who you don't see outside of the, you know, the session, but then you've got a celebrity, right? So you now you can't sort of avoid the fact that maybe you saw that they were in Bora Bora last week on Entertainment Tonight, or they're living this insane life, and here they are bitching on your couch, and you're right. like, you were in Bora Bora last week. It looked lovely. Like, <laughs> do you have to reconcile that, you know, their public image as opposed to their image with you? Does that influence you in any way? That's a good question. Um... Probably not, because I've been doing it for such a long time. L- luckily, I have, I have one good quality, which is I'm not a jealous person, and I'm not really a social climber type person, so I, I don't... There's things that have very little reality to me, you know? He's also not super plugged into, like you just said, Entertainment Tonight or whatever it may be, but he is very good at, maybe he can lay some, you and I, on teaching us, it's not the most relatable thing, but teaching us how to 
deal with ourselves in the press and what people are saying about us and if it's good. Yeah, that's well said. Right, yeah, and that's what you... That's a more common thing. Um, so you, Because once you're getting into the press, there's two parts to it. One part is people, especially the younger people, they can be naive about how dangerous the press can be. And there's some when they're young, especially if it's two actors together, I have to tell them, whatever you do, wherever you go, assume somebody's watching you. And you know, say, what do you mean? I'm on the beach, you know, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm walking with my dog, doesn't matter. Somebody's watching you. And they want, not all of them, but they want the celebrity and all the perks from that, but they don't want the disadvantages of it. So, what? Being aware of it does what, then? I mean... Being aware of it means if you're doing something and you assume it's being photographed, you have to ask yourself, do you want to do it or not? Right. Do you find, though, that some of your clients or people I, I've seen in the limelight tend to, they're like cold-blooded animals in the sense of they need the warmth of the light because yes. when they're not in it, for better or for worse right. at times, they swell up. They can't, you know, they, they, they need it. It yes. feeds them to a certain extent. Do you find that? Yeah, yeah, very much so, I find it. It's funny, we just gave this seminar two days ago, and it, it was about non-attachment, which is how to function in an environment but care a little less about the results of the outcome. Anyway, one of the tools is called dust. So think of yourself on the red carpet, and you know you, you have those big clique lights, those almost blinding lights? Sure. Right? So that, and, and so that light, in a spiritual sense, represents um, making you special, giving you an identity, maybe making you immortal even. It's just the, the, the thing is, it's in, the problem with that is everybody, anybody who can shine light on you blows up in importance, they become too important. If they don't then validate you the way you'd like to, let's say you get a bad review or something, you're weak, you can't deal with it because you're addicted to these, you know, shrinks call it narcissistic supplies. But it just means we love you, we like you, we want to see. Now, the, the, the opposite of that, and by the way, that may, well, you guys are actors, but that, make, that makes actors afraid. If the, the, the people that are judging them are too important, you know, they can make or break you, whatever. So the, the tool is called dust, and dust is the exact opposite of this glaring white light. So the glare, glaring white light is like a fake identity. That it's very superficial. Mm. Think about us like, you think you're back east, you go up to a, an attic, and there's, a, there's like a one-inch layer of dust all over the place, all over everything. And think about it, the dust, the, the light, it shines on you, right? The dust doesn't emanate at all. It doesn't shine on anything or anybody. It's dirty, it's worthless. And if you, so let's say I go, I'm going in for an audition and I'm starting to blow it up. Um, or the, the classic thing is a callback, you know, on TV. So. I don't, I don't get those, but go on, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and what's an audition? <laughs> John hasn't had to audition for decades. I should. Yeah, we got another ad for y'all because this podcast is successful. Native, take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. 
At Native, we create safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. We create products with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. Not convinced? Check out the 7,000 five-star reviews from our customers. 7,000? If it was 700, I would be convinced. But if you times that by 10, geez. Look, their their products are incredible. They're formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. I don't know what all of those things are, but I don't want them anywhere near my products. It's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, very on trend, shea butter, a moisturizer, an emollient, tapioca starch, absorbs wetness. It's made in the USA with ingredients thoughtfully sourced from around the world, no animal testing, gotta love the animals, and free shipping and returns. I mean, look, it works. You don't want to hold back. Native can hang with your workout, busy mom life, or 16-hour day. And is there anything else? I don't think so. I honestly, I got my native deodorant. It's like got these like beautiful citrus notes with like a little bit of like a musk, like a manly kind of undertone. I just know that I smell fresh and good and it's just natural. I feel good about it. What more could you ask for? I'll tell you what you could ask for. Josh, how do I get some? Look. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code CURIOUS during checkout. Yeah, that's right, guys. If you want 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com, use promo code CURIOUS during checkout. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good for you. Right? All right, so you said... Going into an audition, you make it too important. Really. Yeah, if everybody's getting blown up and they're so important, they all represent these lights. You're gonna freeze, or you're gonna be too. You know, you're gonna be out of yourself. Or yeah. You, you won't take risks, etc. So what you have to do is dust the person. You cover them with a one-inch layer of of dust. And what happens? And when you do that, you also feel disappointed. You, it's called pre-disappointment. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, if I'm if I'm going into something and I'm di- I'm disappointed and I've shrunk it down with the dust in advance, I'm much more loose because I know one of you said, "How do you not care about something?" Is that uh-huh. what you said? Yeah, sure. I don't care about it because I made it smaller and I made it less important in in my, in my own mind. And what you said key is key there is that being that taking it down, reducing it there allows you to take chances in yes. your meetings, your auditions. But but he'll but you know he also pushes you know confidence like really like motherfucker I'm you know I mean we we talk about you know all that stuff and he he you know he works with some of the most powerful men and women in this town that 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 are you know sharks and some people may think they're like you know we know some of these people it's like oh you know you're talking about being nice or saying to celebrities like treat that person nice but you also have a you also train some of us to be. Not people, please. Not worry about pleasing everybody all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do Do you want me to talk about the tools, or is that irrelevant? Whatever, whatever you you want to throw out there, I'm I'm loving it. People can use it. Yeah, like I, I'm always trying to. I I would love to hear some things that people you know that are a little more general. I mean, but what you just talked about, like people can make their boss dust, or their some bully that's you know treating yes. them shitty that way, and I. That's probably applicable, right? Yeah, you guys may be, you know, you probably are beyond the stage. We have to audition or whatever, but no. and anything... No, I wouldn't be doing this podcast, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> 
There, well, there is a yeah, there is a level of some weird confidence or something that I have now from you where I don't give a fuck. I'll go in. I'm not an asshole, you know, but I, I just, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. And, you know, because I'm my true self. Like, Phil, you know, said you finally, you know, when I sobered up a few years ago and really started doing the work with him, I'd come and go and, you know, he was a great, cool guy to talk to. And, but when I really dug in, he said, you've, you've stopped confusing the universe now. Mm. Now you're who you should be. How'd you two meet? Uh, I had an old manager that suggested I, I see him, and I, I was getting a divorce, and my dad had Pat died, and I was going, you know, down fast. Yeah. What was your first perception of John when you guys first started working together? My first perception, I liked him very much. He he was basically um, open and honest, but he was he couldn't sit still. Yeah, this is how many years ago? Twelve years ago? More. I was just gonna like, how the fuck do you remember that? I mean, this is this was like the first time, first couple times, and he was like, "Don't ever the way you just walked in this room, the way you sat, the way you're talking to me, don't do that anymore." That was the first session. Yeah. Early on. Yeah. If, it, it was, if the person's open to it, because there's certain things. See, what he would do is he was moving around and like this, and so. What he, if, if he stands still, it's like all of a sudden you're exposed. If you mm, stop moving. Right. And so he was hiding. He was hiding through movement, yeah. So I don't know why you listen to me. Some people, it takes five years, but he, he, that part you got really quick. Yeah. I think you got it within a month or two, if I remember correctly. Well, I would come and go, that kind of stuff. But Do you ever, have you ever had to fire a patient? <laughs> um... Well, once, but I, 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 it's a good story, obviously, so I'll tell you. Um, it was, I used to work at night. I used to work all around the clock. So there was one guy who would come in every, every once a week at like eight, or eight, 9 o'clock at night. I think it was my last patient. He was a, he was a corporate headhunter. And he was one of these guys that was really negative. Like, whatever I would say, he'd say, no, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. So we try this. He was Contrarian. Tr- yeah, he was having problems at work. You know, he, and he was this really smart, talented guy, but he wasn't getting where he needed to, to get to. And I, I work really hard. You know, if somebody resists what I say, I try a, a different tack. I'll try a different tool, whatever. Everything I was telling this guy, he was saying, that's stupid. Well, finally... And this has gone on for months, you know, but this was the, like the peak of it. Finally, I don't know what happened, but I found myself like right here. Standing <laughs> above him. Above him, like a foot away, and I started to scream. Really? I've had enough. I've had enough. I was fucking screaming. I didn't know what I was doing. What, what year did you learn that in psychiatry? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he started, I think we talked a little bit when you met him about you started in prisons, right? Wasn't that how you sort of got your hours? And- yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. All right. This, so I jumped right in this guy's <laughs> oh, face. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were dumb. And it was, he was bigger than I was, like a lot lot bigger. But he, I, I think he was saying to himself, my shrink is a fucking maniac. He's crazy. <laughs> and he just, he, like, he walked out in his little mincing steps and he never came back. Really? Yeah, that, I can't think of any other time anything like that's happened, but I was happy. You know, I, what? No, that's, that's, that's enough of that story. 
Well, just in that, these people that you've had all the years, and some people you talk about going to him, and some people keep it private. When I first went, and I didn't really know much about it, but like there was, I always thought there was a room. Well, I went to like couples therapy, where you'd go in a room, and then the person would leave, and then you, you know, like you wouldn't see the other, you know, patients. Yeah. Well, he lived on this little, he had this little tiny apartment, you know, in, in where, what area is that over there? And it was an elevator, a janky elevator, and some broken down stairs, and it was a tiny little, and you would, come in and you'd see a lot of big people come. It's like, oh, hi, so-and-so, hi. I won't, you know, name it. But, but yeah, name I, I, I like the fact that it took the, like, the weirdness away from it. Because why should we be ashamed that we're going, like, why is it a secret? I don't, I don't get that. Why do some people feel that? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I think, I've asked myself that a million times. I think they associate it with being crazy. Yeah, versus being there's something wrong with me, as opposed to I'm a human being with problems. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, the dynamic between my wife and I, because I come from, like, a single Jewish mother. We probably overly talk. But psychiatry and psychology was always so welcomed and sort of a regular thing. And not mine. My, my family was like, oh, what's... No, don't tell anyone you're going. You're, you're, my wife's you're family as well. Same thing, right? Yeah. yeah, so it seems... And they're very oh, evolved. she's from Sacramento? Sacramento, Irish Catholic family. And they're lovely evolved, but it just wouldn't be the first thing that they would... It wouldn't be as readily yes. approached as, as perhaps my family and upbringing. You know, he started as a child star. And he had no father ever, yeah. uh, other than basically. Me. This is just a roundabout way of me getting a free. Session, yeah, no. Let's Phil, get into it. Because I can't afford it. you. Let's get into it because these, <laughs> these your your listeners, well, you know, they know his his whole life story very yeah. well. I mean, he started very young, and his he you never had a father, right? Never I mean, met him. And never met him. Really, your mother. He was a. Uh, where was this? Yeah, New York. Grew up in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, oh, you grew up where in the West Side? Hell's Kitchen. Right. Yeah. And, well, and, what, and so your mother met your father where was that they were you know like business associates or so I think but he yeah. had a he had a whole family and kids and he was an older guy in his 60s and they had a fling one night he was in quotes separated at the time but who knows <laughs> and uh, my mom was 42 never thought she'd be pregnant and got pregnant always wanted to have you a child you don't have brothers or sisters just us, mom and I. Was wow. was he alive when you were had your success on Drake, Josh and Drake? Yeah, he passed stuff? away about five years ago. But I wish he would have. I wish he would have met you. He, I bet he was super proud of you too. I don't know. You know, I I look at him now, having had you know ten years of sobriety under my belt, and have, have done some good work. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of I think, and and I'm interested to hear your thought on this, Phil. Is that you realize that you can no longer act with impunity, right? Like I'm, I am the witness to my bad behavior and I suffer immediately. So it's not about karma or God punishing me. I punish myself because when I act out of character, it's, it's tough and painful for me. And I would imagine my father having to carry that secret around for 27 years, which is how old I was when he died. I, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. And, so it, it helped alleviate a lot of my resentment. I see. What that do you he think? was in pain. Yeah, like, I, I couldn't carry that secret. And I also, someone once simply said to me when I was thinking about that, and that I have three older siblings, half-siblings that were his kids, and he kind of looked at me and simply said, well, majority rules. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like this guy, that's why people wonder why I don't go talk to my siblings. I'm like, I kind of don't want to ruin the image of whatever yeah, their yeah. father was to them. 
Do they know they're your siblings? I imagine not, only because, like... They'd be asking for money? Well, that, and... I, first of all, I got enough friends. But, like, more so, I, I imagine if they knew they had a one brother out there, and there was the three of them, that they would be curious. But I, I really don't know. Do you know where they live? Florida. This is unbelievable. Is there a chance weird, that the right? dad just didn't give a shit, cut you out, you know, emotionally? He did. Blocked it. He and- didn't you know, didn't feel the pain that you want him to feel. Yeah, compartmentalized it. Well, you know, that's a whole other topic, but you're smart to to think of it in a way that doesn't create a grudge. Um, You know, we call that the maze. The the Mm -hmm. maze is when someone does something to you, hurts you, and whatever, usually it's just a remark, but, but it could be any which way. And you start to think about it and you say, wait a minute, that guy, he owes me an apology or I want revenge, mm. or at least I want him to admit what he did, whatever it is. See, you tend to put your whole life on hold, waiting for this person that hurts you to, like, I call it getting paid. Like, he, he'll make things even again, or make things fair. And, um, you know, in Hamlet, at the beginning, the, the ghost, you know, ha- Hamlet's father, who's dead, says to him, you have to set the balance straight, I think is the right quote. And, you, you, you know, you see how that turned out. Like, mm. everybody died. <laughs> so that that's the maze. And it's unbelievable how often it comes up in a shrink's office. And it, you know, like somebody fucks with you, does something to you, and you start to think about it, and you can't control your thinking. It's as if the person has moved into your head, pitched his tent, and now lives inside. Because every time you think about him, he's, he exists again inside your head. So, what do you... How do you not think of that person right yeah the the tool is called active love and what it means is you take a a person like that that's hurt you that you're obsessing about you know that's put you in the maze and you have to basically send him love and this is not you know it sounds very southern california a little bit you know over what'd you say hippie yeah like hippie-ish and naive but it's it's not um so the way the tool goes is, if you imagine the whole universe is made out of love, you want to like expand your heart and then contract it again, like take all this love, put it in your chest, and then you send it to the other person. So that's called concentration. Then this transmission, which is you send it right over here to the solar plexus. If you find yourself so angry at the other person that you, you can't do it, cut his head off. <laughs> so just look at his trunk. Hmm. And then the final step is the love. You don't just watch it enter his solar plexus. You ride with it. So for a moment, you're one with this other person. They might say, I'm one with some scumbag. What are you, crazy? Hmm. But, but what happens is, if you can become one with somebody that you hate, you can become one with anybody and everybody. And and that, that sense of of oneness will get you out of the maze because... That's that's the reward that you get, and you're in the program, right? Mm. Oh, yes, yes. No, um, please. So you know that's the equivalent of service, and it, it's not just a um, philosophy or a morality or whatever. It's it's a real principle. If Hitler drove by in his car, and I had water, I could wash his car no matter what I think about Hitler, no matter what I feel about. Him. So, love is like a substance, and when you learn to um, move it around and direct it, it gives you a tremendous power. 
Yeah. It's funny. I, I remember once how disarmed I was. Right? I was on I was on this panel. There was this guy, and we were being interviewed for this thing. And I felt that he was just kind of schmucky and giving uh-huh. the moderator a hard time. Uh-huh. And I kind of let it pass. And then finally, I felt the need to be a collector of injustice and right the wrongs. And he's not treating this moderator correctly. So I I, I threw out some barb at him. And he's like, you know, he said something to the effect of like, well, I don't get out much. And I was like, well, we can tell. And and he looked at me and said, you know, that's too bad because I'm just such a huge fan of yours. And it disarmed me so immediately when he came back with like this this compliment and was not adversarial or confrontational yes. and it he responded with love and i immediately thought and maybe because he spoke to my uh you know yeah. me and i was just like ah, not a bad guy <laughs> you know but it's it's interesting I, i'm i'm interested to hear phil because you've written your books and and you've got such these clear tenants and tools yeah. and yet do you find what is your answer to people that simply intellectualize these things and don't implement them, right? Because self can't fix self, and you must take, like, active action, right? Yeah. Okay. If you, if you draw a line in your mind across a page, above the line is called the thinking space. Mm. Below the line is called the work space. Now, the thinking space is what it sounds like. It's just a lot of thoughts going through your head. Now, do you know what the thinking space is good for? What? Nothing. Right. <laughs> now, the work, the workspace, which is below the line, is totally different. The workspace, it only com- is compri- comprised of two things, which is action steps and tools. That's it. So anything you want to do, what was the question? How do you implement the action yeah, part of okay. it without purely intellectualizing yeah. it? Yeah. So you have to make a goal for yourself, and we'll get into this in detail, of staying below the line. Now, the, the, the human soul, like your psyche, is going to want to pop up back into the thinking space. You mm-hmm. know, So it's like trying to push a beach ball underwater, and it keeps popping up and popping up. So the person who wins is the person that's just willing to keep pushing it down again, and in those two ways, and taking action... And in using tools. He always says to me, like, hard work, like, you know, the actions you're talking about, and, and, and working hard just in our thing, there's no, the reward is more work. The process. The, yeah, but the, there's no, you're not doing it to, for a reward. If I, yeah, if I do this, doing. this, this, I'm going to get this. No. Yes. Right? Yes, that's good. Yeah, we call that ceaseless immersion. In other words, the need, challenges are never going to stop. And you have to be ready to meet them basically with tools and, and action. And that's life. That, like you guys are very, very successful. And neither of you think, well, life's going to be really easy next year. You know? But, but yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got a baby coming. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I know. It's time for another ad. This is the best part of podcasts. It's probably my favorite. And I listen to a lot. So you're welcome. Anyway, what do you want to talk about? How about life insurance? I knew it. Guys, getting life insurance can feel like assembling the world's worst jigsaw puzzle. It's confusing. It takes forever. And when you're finally done, it just it doesn't even look cool. I mean, look, the truth of the matter is life insurance, it's some, it's some grown-up shit. You know, it's adulting. 
And it's an important thing, even though at first it might seem like a little daunting or hard to navigate. But Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you apply online, the advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape. They'll even negotiate your rate with the insurance company. No commission sales agents, no hidden fees, just helpful advice and personalized service. And Policy Genius doesn't just like make life insurance easy. They also make it easy to find the right home insurance, auto insurance, or disability insurance. They're your one-stop shop for financial protection. So if you find life insurance puzzling, head to policygenius.com. In two minutes, you can compare quotes, find the right policy, and save up to 40% doing it. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Is it, but uh, we're all uh, famous or not, celebrity or not, we're all perpetually seeking a, an, an imaginary finish line, right? If yes. all, And you talk about this. If only I attained this measure yes. of success, prestige, I'll feel complete and, yeah. and content. Yeah, that's, that's called the realm of illusion. Like, here's an example. A kid will come out here. Let's say he's 22 years old. He's good looking. He has some talent. But he's also a drug addict, and he has a bad temper, and he... he you have, you do, you have read Josh's bio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been Sorry. studying... 300 it. pounds, go on. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been studying. So... Sorry. So, so the, I, I may meet the person, you know, because they're drinking or whatever, and, and the kid will say, it doesn't matter because I'm going to be a star by next year or in a few years. And once I become a star and famous, all these problems are going to go away. And I, I won't be become an alcoholic, all this. So it's like magic is going to happen when I reach this point. Now, most of them don't reach it. So they, they go home, you know, crushed. But those that do reach it end up, it just is a matter of time before they feel just as bad as they did at the beginning. Did that, was that how you, did you feel some of that? Yeah, I mean, inevitably, it, I, I remember, you know, we all have a version of a bottom, right? Right. And, um, 12 steps big on this, a moment of clarity, what have you. But I remember very clearly being in Sundance. I was in this movie that I was so proud of with my favorite actor. And we got this standing ovation. The and Wackness? it was the whackness, and it was so well received. He with. Oh, he's a strong, yeah. Patient of yours? No. You tell me off mic. Uh, <laughs> and blink twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember feeling completely empty. And on paper, I had everything I'd always dreamt of. And it was in that moment where my suspicion throughout my life had been validated of that oh no, I'm bottomless. Like nothing will fill this up. Nothing of this world, no amount of financial success or relationships or what have you will fill me. This is what I'm working on, so I want to take notes. Anybody ever take notes on you doing Oh, wow. There you go. Very honest. You know, for you folks playing at home, Phil's famous for these little cards and he, any any of his patients around town, you know, we all talk about him too because like he's so cheat sheets. Well, but yeah, and he he makes these cards and you take them. And I was just playing a shrink, and you 
and I used, I brought the script and we went over every piece, every word, but then I used these cards in my, in my thing. If you see this one, um, let's see if you'll be able to, you, try to figure this one out, you kind of <laughs> I love this. That, yeah, we should play this game. That one might, I don't know when, here. Uh, wow. Look at, here, look, look, look at this one, you, you can talk about it. This was early on when I, when I first came in, it, 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 explain it if it makes, it's interesting. If not, we can cut this out. You've had this book for 20 years? No. Well, so how did... Well, oh, I have tickles. Did you get this? I, yeah, I do. It's here. Well, uh, well here, you explain it. You wrote that. And will you explain that? when you talk about X, Phil? Part X is the, you know, the, your bat, the devil on your shoulder, yeah. you know. You see it. When I first came in, he, he said to me, your, your, your life is like a porpoise orgy. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, you did, so. And then he was like, stop trying to, stop trying to uh, charm the world, seduce mm. the world. You, you, you did that already. Let that go. That was good, Yeah, right? he did. He let it go really fast. Sometimes it creeps back in. It's, it's, you know, I'll be in meetings and I'll just hear his voice, you know, it's like, you know, I'll just, I'll just sit back and I'll be strong and I'll listen and I won't try to be cute or try to be fun. It's so hard for me to not crack a joke or not be you know that guy you know me very well but when i do it, i i'm i come out a lot stronger you know and i feel like well, you know i didn't need to do that and the poison's in the dose to a certain extent right because in so many ways in 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 minimal doses that's so much of what is your charm and and i you get a kick out of you know making people laugh and being quick with a joke and yet it can also be to your detriment at times exactly yeah, when I met him, he, that he was always great at. But to move from there to something more serious, he could do it, but it, took, it wasn't natural. And I told him, I forget in what, exactly what words, but you want to be able to move freely into the deeper world. See, he had, um, what do you say, insecurity or an inferiority complex. There's something about his mind. His mind's excellent. And by the way, he could be one of the great interviewers of all time if he, if he wanted to. Because I just pelt him with questions. Yeah. You, know, you know, I do, I, you know, just ask people questions about you. Well, and I imagine it sometimes, it gets, you, gets tiring talking about yourself. Oh, yeah. Right? I'm at that point for sure. Yeah. And, uh, what do you learn by talking, you know, like you really, by talking about yourself, right? Wait, what was I saying? So you were saying about the inferiority oh, yeah. early on. Yeah, so, so there were certain conversations, certain situations, certain people that he didn't want to be around because he, he didn't feel he was their equal, right. which was ridiculous, but, but it, it, it affected him. And what we did was, basically, I made him go out into the world as if he wasn't an idiot, as if he had something to say, as if other people would be interested in what he had to say. And it worked. He he worked really hard on that. How long did that take? Like a year or something like that? I'm still trying. I'm still still working on it. Yeah. All this stuff. It's like you know that. You say you say like how do you get people to actually do the you know do the work right? The action, yeah, not take just, the action. Know, not just think about it, but take those actions. Yeah. And I think you know if you read his books or you listen to him talking now or as me as a, as a patient, it like you sort of. I hear his voice come up in those moments. No, 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 don't just sit there. Mm. Don't let the tension out of the, this conversation right now. Be present. Look the motherfucker yeah. in the eye. Don't squirrel around. Don't try to be funny. 
Yeah, it's a practice. And yeah. Do you, you, you know, you, you. Do you feel that the. Obviously, you and I know John really well, and we know how, you know, sort of how deep of a guy he is. Do you find that some of that inferiority is born out of when. When a part of you, where your outside appearance is used as a currency to some yes. respect, mm-hmm. and do you find that that sort of is, something is born inside of people where they feel like, God, is this all I'm known for? Is this my only currency? Yes. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the big areas, obviously, it's happening now is with women. Because I, my story is... Um, Starting this year, 2018, is, is the ascendancy of the female. Not just females getting jobs they couldn't get before, but also in males. You know, male, males adopting a little more of a female point of view. Um, Which is what? Being more sensitive or not being afraid to be emotional? or Yeah, it's being more vulnerable. Vulnerable. The, the, the main thing about women is, again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, Categorize, you know, billions of people, but they're hard, they're less corruptible than men. You <laughs> Why? Why? Because see, two, think of it as, as if they're two universes: universe one and universe two. Universe one, thanks, is um, um, is numerical. So so value um, is is enumerated with a number, mm. and ultimately that comes down to money. So that's universe one, and males tend to to live and work in that universe. That's how they think of things. That's why they what? It's a hunter gatherer complex yes. to Correct. a certain extent. Sure. Yes, and with the emphasis on hunter. Mm-hmm. So universe two is completely different. Universe two value is not created through money, and it's not created through numbers. It can't be quantified. In universe two. Value has to do with the ability to create. And it doesn't just mean um, create a movie or write a book or something. You know, creativity can, can, can emerge anywhere. You know, raising a kid can be, you know, if you have a paper route, you can be creative. But, you know, in, prior to the 19th century, you know, pe- the people that made things were craftsmen. So... The, the craft, like if, if this table, this desk was made in a factory, you'd have 20 guys, each one screwing in a different screw and putting a different... So Not Jews, have, but people. <laughs> yeah, right. Jews don't screw. Yeah. No. Yeah, then maybe I shouldn't finish this. All right, <laughs> finish it anyway. So, so, so in the, uh, let's say in, in the year 1800, a craftsman, he would make every aspect of this. Mm. He'd probably even mm. have to make the nails that he put into it. So the, his, the value to him was the fact that he had created the whole thing. And the, if, if we stay in universe one, if we can't move out of it, and women are much more prone to move out of it, for, they create life, right? Uh-huh. So life is a value. That, that's why sometimes you'll see women, they'll talk about men's ambition with a little bit of contempt or disgust. It's almost like those are like schmucks playing at a much lower level than we are. And, you know, there's some truth. Look, anything can become too exaggerated. But th- this is a very favorable thing, I think, for me. You know, everything goes can go too far and can get exaggerated. But in general, if we, ca- if we can't have the ascendancy of the female, we're not going to make it. For more, 
for if, if you cut out everything else just based on global warming and the future of the earth this is the, the the women are going to go out once they get angry about something they'll just go out and go for it and they don't give a shit what no no, no. i was I, I i was interested to that extent of what what do you find i mean you know people always talk about what what are our main sort of uh, obstacles in life it's your money and your honey right, right. it's it's uh, financial romance so when people come in here and they're talking about their relationships or their marriage or what have you interpersonal female or male is your instinct to say like it's only all i can do is work on you right i mean if they're not here to tell their side of it we you know how much can we get done here could you ask that question differently <laughs> is it is it uh when you're talking about the inner person the inner relational things between a man and a woman yeah. how do you how do you approach that where's your Oh, I see what you're saying. Are you saying that if he doesn't, if it's just one point of view, the man or the woman, and you don't, he doesn't know the other person, right? In in that it's a it's an inside job in that respect, right? But I bet he can just lay on what he just laid on to us, and we do with it what, mm. well, truthfully later. Yeah, I mean, that's, right. it's kind of what I do with you. Um, you know, to some extent, like when he got himself to the point where he was fit to actually function in a relationship. Mm -hmm. In a very short time, he attracted somebody who, he, who was great and was, I think, very suitable for you, like unbelievably suitable. And um, that's, that's called field theory. In other words, it's like you're in a state, do you ever try to do something and fail? You try, finally you give up and then it happens by itself the next day. Have you had an experience like that? Yeah, sure. Like the classic thing is, is a woman trying to get pregnant. She tries, fails, tries, fails. And then, then she says, I give up, I'm going to adopt. And then the day she signs the adoption paper, she gets pregnant. So there's an invisible, like a, almost like a force field that, that governs results. So to go back to relationships, you're teaching somebody how to evoke the field in a way where it will help you um, both find the person and, and more importantly, you know, get along with the person. Um, so you talk about like the craftsmen in the 1800s and, you know, building the table and whatnot. Do you think that of the last hundred years with sort of we've had a renaissance of modern psychiatry and psychology? Yeah. Do you think it's born out of the fact that now with agriculture and that, you know, we're not all working in the fucking fields yes. 18 hours a day, that we just have so much time with self to think about us and be in our own heads because our life cycle is twice the amount of time. And That's we're not, the place he's talking about above the line. Right? Yeah, and that we're not worried about just merely surviving, that we can contemplate our existence in the universe and where we fit. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, there's definitely truth in that. There's also the opposite, which is, yes, you might have more time to meditate, to read stuff, to go to a shrink, whatever. The other side of the coin is, a lot of times people mistake those luxuries for real meaning. And um, it's why, you know, for a very long period of time in this country, I don't know, the last 30, 40 years, um, 
the, there were, I, as far as I'm concerned, there were a lot of in, inequities, inequalities where in my generation, the 60s, everybody would have been in the street throwing rocks or whatever. And, and I, I, a guy wrote an article on this and he said the, the major reason that took so long to happen was um, because, because of um, the, the ubiquity of, of images whether it's going to the movies, but now it's so much more, you know. You don't, you don't even have to leave your bed. You, you, so He knows, he's on his phone all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what happens is it's distracting and people think that, it, it, they, they start to think it's the real world when it's not, and it takes very little effort, which is the key of it. See, to reach the, the, to reach the real world, it takes work and it continues, to, and it takes continuous work. If you can't reach the real world, it's very hard to have a relationship that's real because there are electronic distractions that yeah. um, they, they just never stop because, they, I mean, just think of what's happened to Netflix and the cash flow they have and the power they have. Tell me about it. I mean, the guy's got a brand new Tesla out there. John's, doing, <laughs> John's on Netflix. He's doing great. Talk about how do you separate uh, your patients from your own emotions about them i mean have you been i'm sure you've been completely over the moon about some of your people you know getting married having kids do you know doing what you've told them a lot of times when i leave he'll say just do what i tell you and and, and it'll work and then you have you know i know there's chris farley i know was a guy that you try to like do you, uh, talk speak to that a little bit about you mean the personal involvements yeah or like how well I used to hate him until he took me to Soho House once. He loved Soho House. <laughs> <laughs> go. Good I don't think anybody too. asks you ever about you, first of all, because they, you know, they're paying for it. They want to get that up. I love asking about him, and so and or ask you to go to dinner and or come to their birthdays or yeah, you know. like obviously but, you and I met at Saget's wedding. I don't think that's a secret. But mm -hmm. like, is there what what is that line, and is it different for everyone? Um, yeah, it's different for everyone. Um, I mean, the old school thing was you couldn't, you weren't supposed to go to any events at all. Mm -hmm. I, number one, there's a difference between somebody that you've been treating for three years versus somebody you've been treating for 23 years. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is um, if, if after 20 years or something, you, you, you haven't transcended the, the relationship, something's wrong. How is it? But how, how? How? I mean, obviously, it's hard. But like, when you wake up and hear the news that somebody died or overdosed, yeah. or, or you know, it's it's the most terrible feeling in right. the world. It's the the worst is you wake up in the morning and someone killed themselves. But the second worst is you wake up in the morning and somebody got indicted or something like that. Do you so, immediately go into self and feel as though what what could I have done differently? Should I have? Or um, I did when I was younger. Now, you know, you become so paranoid about tragedies and you're so worried about them that it's the, the thinking happen, The thinking is going on all the time. Mm. Um, but you know, at this point, I'm 71 years old. Most of the people I know for such a long time, so it's a, it's a quieter practice. Um, Can you tell when someone's lying to you? Uh, probably. 
if I, I'm not the type that tries to find that out. Uh-huh. I, tr- I tend to take things at face value, with the exception of somebody's using drugs, right. you know. To that end, I'm interested in obviously like, you know, when, when John was boozing uh, over the years and now like you've been, you know, sort of publicly sober for the last few years. Three and, how, and a half. What? Three and a half. Three and a half. Amazing. But like, what was your, what was going on in your head during that point? Because I know this, you know, this, the psychological community sort of has a, a approach to this. A lot of times they feel as though they can't be helpful unless they're actively working some sort of, you know, sobriety program. What was going through your mind? About him? Yes. Um, I, I was hopeful after he got caught because he, he did everything right really fast, like really fast, and showed no resistance to it. So I was hopeful that what actually has happened would happen. And in, if you look at it from that point of view, it was really, it was probably the best thing that's ever happened to you. Hmm. What about the years leading up to that? Before sort of the the years of leading up to that were good. He made a lot, he made tremendous progress, but he was al- he would always bullshit himself about this. Not even bullshit, just he would diminish it in importance. It, it felt to me like after it happened, you had to make a decision about how do I want to live the next thirty years, you know, and also what does he want to accomplish? Do 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 uh, but you know he's a specialist in you know, abuse and the big proponent of the. You know, program right I mean you yeah, big, walk yeah. people through that a lot I'm not a specialist in abuse per se it's just I've, I've dealt with it so many times alright what's the craziest one of the craziest fucking things you heard in this room <laughs> or oh I'll tell you <laughs> you're not, you won't even believe this but all right, I'll tell you that this is a long time ago a long time 1977 and at that point I was in New York and mm-hmm. I had a um, you know I was very young so in psychiatry, the younger you are, the harder the harder the patients you're assigned, mm-hmm. so to speak, referred to, because the older guys don't want to deal with them, because mm. they take too much out of you. Anyway, I, <laughs> I, I was working in a prison, but I also had a private practice, so it's like dinner time, 6 o'clock, I get back to my office, and I'm listening to my messages, and I hear the following, oh... I knew who I was listening to on my on my um, answering machine because I had her trained. I'll we'll call her um, June. That's not her name. So I, the, on this answering machine, I hear somebody say, like screaming it, I'm not afraid of you. And I knew right away it was my patient, June. And then this other voice comes in. This is like they, you could hear the door opening, and this other person comes in and says, "I'm not afraid of you." And then June's. And then they're going back and forth. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you. Blah blah blah. And then I hear like a, a chair move, like really loudly, and I hear a scream. And then the thing goes blank. <laughs> Cut to an hour later. I'm still in my office. The cops call me. They say, is June X, whatever, your patient? Because she's here and she wants to talk to you. I go, what happened? And the guy says, she killed her mother. He tells it just like that. I said, oh my God, I witnessed that on the answering machine. And he said, we'd like that tape. 
<laughs> but it was too late. I had I had already recorded over it. You know, it you, you recorded over it that quick, Phil. <laughs> I, immediately Other after I heard it, I didn't know what, what was going. I used to. You wouldn't believe what the, the kind of messages on my hands. And that yeah. particular one, somebody there was somebody was singing on the fucking machine. You know, <laughs> you have a lot of secrets in this town, right? Like, what if somebody just held it? You know, we should ki- kidnap you and hold you by gunpoint. Tell us but, about Jack Nicholson. You mother. They can't subpoena you, right? They, um, no, they can't. Right, it's, it's, it's privilege. Unless they commit a crime, or you know they committed a crime. If they come in and say, "Hey, I killed my mother," uh, I'm I'm liable. If someone tells me they're going to kill right. somebody, I have to t- tell the police. Um, but if if I find that after the fact, I have no reporting re- requirements. Interesting. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, what if they said they killed somebody? Already? No. You wouldn't go. You wouldn't call the police. Past tense. No. All right. Good no, to know. Good to know. Good All to know. right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So just don't tell me till after you do it. Uh, what, what's the most common issue? Forget celebrity. Just you know, in in general, patients, people that are listening, you know, that that they could relate to. Um, the do. most common. Probably. Probably. Well, you know, it used to be um, moderate to, to mild depression. It used to be right. the most common. But anxiety is getting to, so right. prevalent now, it's catching up. Anxiety and depression tend to go together anyway. They tend not to be separate. Um, We're living in an angst-ridden time right now. Yeah. Politics and, 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 and all that. Has, has anxiety levels risen in your people? Yeah. And yeah. what do you tell them? Um, okay. This this is a, again all these things. Are, I'm trying to get them out fast, but yeah. some of them are. I mean, if somebody's you know going yeah. crazy about politics right now and the way our country's yeah, been, being run and whether you know I don't want to pick sides, but I mean, if they just can't fucking and you know people are out there on the edge, right? Yeah, I mean, I think people are definitely incredibly um, passionate about what's going on. Yeah, think of it like this. Because we talked before about universe number two and, and creativity and creation, the the forces that create new things in, in our culture or whatever are in motion. They're moving, so they're uncertain. Like nobody really knows. Even if you look at the tech thing, you know, everybody says I knew. Most of these people didn't know shit. You know, they didn't they didn't predict it till it had been around for five years. So human beings are not good at predicting. Uh, within uh, an uncertain circumstance. Um, but if you want to change your life, if you want to create anything, even a family, you have to enter into this state of uncertainty. I just, when I draw it for them, I just draw these little squiggly lines. Now, there's nothing human beings hate more than uncertainty. Nothing. So, because we, our sense of self, who we are, is built up through the the idea that you know yourself, you know your qualities, and you know, and because of that, you know the future, and everything is like tamped down. Everything is very predictable and familiar. Mm. If and once some once you either want to change, or sometimes things come in that you you couldn't have predicted. Either way, you're subject to uncertainty now. There's only one thing you can bring with you. You know, let me draw this. 
because it'll, it'll make it much easier. Obviously. Listeners, um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll He's putting a happy face on my forehead. <laughs> this no. is uh, we're playing. Uh, it looks like tic tac toe. Okay. Lolly. So, John, what else is new? Let's do. Let's do a scene from Drake and Josh. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, did you tell you're 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 coming on Fuller House pretty soon? You know, December twelfth cool. or something. Let me know. Well, I just did. You don't even know. No, but like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're just filling the time, folks. Yeah. All right. See, see this here. That's uncertain. Is it a, is it a Rorschach test? Because I see my mother's vagina. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're way ahead of me. Uh, really? <laughs> no. So it's a bunch of lines that are uncertain. So to, so to move forward in life, change your life, heal your symptoms, you have to move into this uncertain zone. But the, no matter how rich you are, powerful, whatever, this is a very upsetting zone to, to move into. There's only one thing you can take with you into uncertainty, and that's called a turnaround. It looks like this. So each, each one of these little hooks is a, is a turnaround. And what do these represent? I can't tell you that. No. <laughs> now, you're going to have to turn into part two, which will be twenty nine ninety nine. So what the, those turnarounds mean, they're, they're used with a little arrow, like make it look like a little fish hook. The downstroke on the left of each one of those things represents a problem. You are depressed. You are enraged. You're, you're obsessing about, it doesn't matter, whatever the problem is, you're demoralized, you don't want to go to work anymore, whatever. If you, if you turn that around, meaning you go down, let's say, into a depression, and then you have tools and you come back out of it again, mm. that's a turnaround. So a turnaround is the ability to create a new mood, a new state of mind in yourself under duress, when it's not so easy to do. You're both in the program, so... The program is, half the time someone will come into a meeting and they'll feel that like they want to kill themselves. By the time they get out of the meeting, they're, they're okay again. They have some relation to a higher power. So here's the secret of anxiety. The person that creates the most turnarounds deals with uncertainty the best, and therefore their, their anxiety goes down. So, so what, what are we really saying? You can, you can work on your anxiety all the time. If every time your mood starts to slip, you try to bring yourself back to a positive mood immediately, right then and there. Now, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. I love the program because at least it gives people tools to try to bring themselves back. Of course. Well, yeah, the, go ahead. the answer in the program, right, to any sort of discomfort, Yeah. if it's not based in, like, prior... It's sort of an inventory, let's right. say. It's take immediate wow. action and be of service. Esteemable acts build self-esteem. Yes. So like, and a big thing which I've heard too, which for me is that at around a year, if you're sober, and for most people, your life, you know, you get your life back and things are sort of working at a good clip. You got a, you know, a car and a nice place to live and a job. At that point, they say, all the self-searching, all the self-contemplation is no longer relevant to you. Mm-hmm. The, the only way to grow now is to help someone else. Yes. And through doing that, more will be revealed to you about yourself. Yes. Phil always talks about 
uh, 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 microtransactions. Mm. You know, and I, and I pride myself, and I think that's what makes me who I am. Not that I was on Full House or that I, you know, married this girl or I play with the beach. It's these little moments in your life, whether it's talking to the guy who parked our car today, the way you treat, you know, the in texting, whatever it is, those little moments, those little microtransactions. Uh, and a lot of it is, you know, being unselfish and thinking of others first. And um. Yeah, my, see, microtransaction, it's easy to say I have a, a meeting with somebody or I'm going out to dinner with somebody or someone's coming over my house. Those are transactions are easy because they're obvious. You know they're going to happen. But the, the dispositive... Um, the things that really change you and change the world are the microtransactions that mostly occur at random, they occur by accident. Every person, so let's say you're the president of a company, you go out in the hallway to take, I mean you go out in the hallway and walk to the men's room, and on your way into the men's room a guy walks out that's on a much lower level than you are. Now a bad CEO won't even look at the guy. A medium CEO will say, Hey, how you doing? But a great CEO, even even though it only take ten seconds, he'll lock on to the guy, try to remember his name, ask him how he's doing. He'll lock on for a second, and what he's saying is, "You're a human being. You're important. You're, You're important. You mean something. Yeah. You mean something." So, what do you do when, like, say you? And I'm sure you've had clients to a certain extent who are of a you know Harvey Weinstein esque, right? Like yeah. A tyrant. Yeah. Is it just you reconciling that? I'm not going to change this person completely, but if I can make him them 10% more tolerable, I've done my work. Yeah, within reason. I mean, <laughs> if the guy's out, you know, really fucking people up, I, I can't do it. But yes, within reason, I can. You know, I say if, if a guy like that will actually spend the time, and the money doesn't matter, but if he'll actually spend the time, that shows something. Or he, he wouldn't make the, make the effort to even come back here. And it's, when people come in and they've got sort of that mild depression, which I suffer from, yeah. of like just a, a, a resting discontent, but everything on paper is all right. And it's not severe. It's not debilitating. But is there a part of you that just wants to say, we could sit here for an hour, but if you went and did a 45-minute <laughs> workout and did something nice for someone else, mm -hmm. that might serve you <laughs> yeah. even better than us just sitting here talking it out. I mean... Yeah, the answer is yes. I'm not sure what the question was, but the answer is, <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, and th that's called forward motion. And the idea, to me, of life is basically forward motion, but mostly it's not so much the outer forward motion. I mean, that's nice, that's good, but it's, it's the inner forward motion. So you try to teach people s very specific skills and then then try to force them to execute the skills over and over and over it again. It goes back to the line that we talked about in the beginning, the thinking part and the right. doing part underneath it. And that's what you can tend to do, right? Sit around and think. And, uh, yeah. Sure. Instead of getting out, like you said, 45 minutes, go help someone, go do something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's... I mean, especially just the effects of being able... I mean, I think in the UK, they've started to treat sort of mild depression with a, a trainer, like a, a state-sponsored trainer, yes. because they say, yeah, we could give you medicine, but the effects of raising your endorphins and serotonin four times a week might actually have the same effect. Yeah, medication. you know, the latest studies say that actually 
you know, they have one cohort that's taking regular antidepressants, and the other ones are no meds at all. Mm. And the one, but but they they have tools and things that they have to do. And exercise is a big deal for, for me for chronic mm. uh, depression. This group over here actually did a little better than the group that was on the medication. Right. So you know, there's a generic treatment for depression which I use for everybody, which is. Um, it has to do with eating, controlling your eating, controlling your sleeping properly, exercise, and... Masturbate. Yeah, and frequent masturbation. I How picked frequent? That up <laughs> What's too frequent? <laughs> Let's talk about sex. What's the weirdest... I mean, as people come in and go, look, Phil, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I feel great, I'm not depressed, I like to fuck dogs, but other than that, I'm you know... Well, maybe he can improve his taste in right. Do you get some weird sex <laughs> shit with people? Uh, yeah, I get, yeah, I get some, um, it's not, uh... Talk about, this was interesting, and maybe this can be, um, sort of applicable to people listening to, we talked about, recently we were talking about men and women and how, we were talking about, you had a, uh, someone watching porn instead of having sex with his wife, and you talked about how a oh, woman is yeah, connected the to world. the mother and, and, uh, the boy, this is separate from the mother. Yeah. That. Boy, this is a far-reaching tape. Yeah. Well, I mean, he can. okay. Here's what happens. It happens much more frequently than you would think. The guy has sex with his wife. They have a good sex life. They enjoy it. They, it's they both come. Whatever it is, it's satisfying. And then the the guy will say, "Excuse me." He'll go up to his office, and the wife will walk in and see the guy looking at at a porno. Now. From a women's point of view, it's insane. It's like, what? I know we had a great sexual experience. There's no question about it. You, and if you, if you needed more, why didn't you come to me? What are you doing with these tapes? Now, the answer is, what he's doing is, not, not that I'm condoning this at all, but he, he's taking his sexuality back into himself. Right. So he owns it, and he's not subject to a woman. Mm. See, women... And the way to understand this is the, the developmental task of a, a man is to separate from his mother, right? So the mother's female, in, in his separation, he's got to assert his maleness. Any time for the, for the rest of his life where he gets too close to the female, it's like he gets sucked into a vortex and he'll lose his identity. So men tend to have much more than women these, I call it the secret world. Sometimes the secret world is another woman, sometimes it's porno, it doesn't really matter what it is. But the point is it's something that his, his mother, in quotes, can't get to. Can't, it's, it's all completely symbolic. Women don't have that problem because they don't have to separate from their mothers to that degree. They have to separate from their mothers for other reasons, but sexually, gender-wise, there's no separation. So they have no need to have a secret world. And if you're treating that kind of situation, the, the guy is going to have to give up as much of that secret world as he can. Um, if, because if he doesn't, th things are very rarely static. You know, if he, if he doesn't give it up, or at least d d decrease it, um, the desire for the secret world it can break up a marriage altogether. And do you find like, and for people like me, I found that 
you know, I, I overindulge in all things. And so it's not just drugs and alcohol, it's food or sex or what have you. And, and what I've realized being in a, in a healthy relationship is that these things, like it's literally moderation in all things. Mm -hmm. And that if I'm overindulging in anything, even just a little bit, it's, um, there's something going on. I'm, I'm pushing some discomfort away. Balance, right? Yeah. And, and is that like, so for the most part, like, cause I feel like people all think like, well, God, this is my only thing, but inevitably I kind of, Again, it's to that, like, there's no impunity anymore, right? Like, you really, you can't even have one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, It's funny, we were just working on the chapter on on this, because I'm I'm writing this book on the field. And the the, the field has four um, laws. Non-attachment, microtransactions, commitment, and self-restraint. So we're writing the chapter on the self-restraint. So it's... Self-restraint means you can block your impulses, mm. but the real question is, where are your impulses coming from? Mm. And the, the, the impulses are a false attempt to be free, to gain freedom. And is it ego? Is uh, the ego yes. screaming out for that? You can, yes. But be specific, like what impulses to overeat or to drink or sex, those? If you, if you want to say... Josh said it really well about the bottomlessness. Mm. It's it's an attempt to over overcome the bottomlessness and right. and feel like you feel basically like you you exist as a separate person and that you deserve the, those things. or like you, you know well we don't drink anymore so I can eat as much sugar as I you know want or yeah sure and I deserve I, you know so. Um, the guy that's helping me write this, who has like 20 years in, um, he said, he, it was a very specific thing, how did he say it? Um, he said it, it, it has to be a an interesting way to get freedom. Now, really, freedom is, is not inherently interesting. Freedom has to do with your disciplines. But this is the this is like how can you do it and make the disciplines more juicy, more fun? Mm-hmm. And the answer is by basically making it a crapshoot if you're even going to discipline yourself or not. Right. So, um, the, and you're right that that interesting quote and interesting uh, thing can happen if if you get under control here, it can happen over here. Which means again, ceaseless immersion. It's going to be constant work for the rest of your life. That's why the program it has so many aspects of greatness in it. But it's it's designed to say, you're an alcoholic. You're always going to be an alcoholic. It's it's not really so bad. Um, it's not going to go away. It's not. Yeah, that's the ceaseless immersion. That, by the way, the idea of ceaseless immersion is it's the singular thing that our whole culture rejects. Because we're supposed to get some. Look at this guy here. You know he's a movie star, so he, he should. <laughs> Tell. I'm sorry. Right? It's a long life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, there's this. There's. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Um, no, there's this sort of modern day philosopher named Alain de Botton, and he talks about how we all systematically are serve this idea that at a young age. 
and eventually we will find contentment through a profession that not only feeds us financially, but also feeds us emotionally and that, and uh, creatively, and that we will find a partner or a person who fulfills every need and is a soulmate and sexually and romantically is everything we could have asked for. And he's like, and the reality is we so rarely find those things, but even if we do, it's still not enough. Yes. Yeah. So that's called exoneration. Exoneration means I reach some point of success and I'm exonerated from the three basic unavoidable aspects of being human. Hmm. Um, which are the need to work constantly, the, the fact that there's going to be pain, and the fact that you're going to have to deal with uncertainty. That's the basis of the human condition. There's no getting around. It doesn't matter. There isn't? No. Oh, <laughs> shit. Damn it. Let's go. Ugh. Well, if you, there are, I can give premium sessions where I can do that. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you just write a prescription and <laughs> walk out. So if you get a lot of people coming here going, motherfucker, I did everything I was supposed to do. I did this right, I did that right, and I'm not where I want to be. Or, you know, how do you deal with someone who who loses someone, uh, you know, close to, it, like, how do you deal, I, mean, I guess those are two things, right? But I always wonder that too. Like, when someone comes in, my, my kid got hit by, like, what the fuck do you tell them? Can we answer the easier question? Sorry, no, the first question is, yeah, someone comes in and says, I've no, done this, good. this, and this, why am I not here? Yeah, that, that's called the loser circle. <laughs> so, oh, I've been there. Yeah, me too. Four or five times a year, so a guy will come in, somebody I don't know, and they'll say, I have two Academy Awards, five beautiful children, six houses, and a, so he'll say to himself, I, I have all these things, but there's this group of people that I don't feel they accept me. They they don't invite me to things. They get better press. They get better tables. You know, they, that, that's they're the winner circle. And the guy, one guy actually said this. He said, uh, "Who do I have to fuck to get in the winner circle?" <laughs> and the the fact is, there is no winner circle. You know, the guy will be jealous of one guy, and then he'll leave. And the the guy himself that he's jealous of is likely to be my next patient. Right. So there's there's no um, there's no escaping. The, the bottom line is we're all going to die. There's no there there. No, no. There's not not in this sense. There's no winner's circle. There's nothing to attain. It's impossible. Everyone is in the loser's circle, <laughs> and you only have two choices: either pretend you're not in the loser's circle, so spend your whole life striving to to reach this thing. You never, or accept the fact that you're in the loser circle. And the, the way you accept the fact that you're in the loser circle is by accepting losses, which actually could connect to mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And you, have to, you can't just say, I accept losses. You have to have a tool for it. So we have, we have a couple of tools that are, that are really effective for that. So the, the ability to accept a loss and Accept it doesn't mean, oh, it's a loss and I can't get away from it. Accepting, accepting it means turning it into something positive. The ability to do that is what makes you, um, is what gives you the power of non-attachment. So, you know what the power, well, I, I better explain that, right? Sure. I call the potency of non-attachment. It's the ability to lose, like, every um, negotiation you ever 
participant in for the rest of your life. The winner is always going to be the guy who can walk away. So that's called the potency of non-attachment. And and if you, I discovered it in the basketball game when I was I was a, fre a yeah I was a freshman in college. I I took this I was taking this shot. I'm about 22 feet out, and I saw the the referee was over there, and he put the, his whistle up to his mouth. So I thought he was going to call the shot dead. So I was I shot it totally relaxed because I thought it didn't count, and it went in swish. But he never blew his whistle, so it actually counted. So I'm 16, and I'm thinking, hmm, wouldn't it be nice if I could get in that? It was a state of relaxation and total focus. It was a flow state. And I, I said to myself, Is it, isn't there a way I could do that, not by random because the referee forgot to blow his whistle, but through a tool? And um, so, so there are a number of tools. The, the dust thing I told, we talked about at the top of the podcast is one example of making things less important by being willing to let go of them. So the last question that I ask uh, at the end of every podcast yeah. uh, what is the one or two, and I feel like you've sort of, th these are your books, but what are the one or two Phil Stutz commandments, truths that you have found for yourself of great importance that you would want to impress upon someone who you were trying to help? Uh, number one, shut the fuck up. Love it. <laughs> um, but seriously, if I had to pick one thing, that's really hard. Um, Buy my book, The Tools. Mm -hmm. Oh, Amazon. yeah. Amazon.com. <laughs> I'd like to be able to say one thing, but um, maybe I better mail that in. Um, Do you ever lay in bed at night before you go to sleep? You probably don't, but you should, and go, I I'm making this world a better place. I'm laying some really good stuff on a lot of people. And they're laying it on the their people, the people that they work for, or work people work for them, or the entertainers that you know can reach millions. Do you feel that? No, I feel we're, we're getting we're like developing an organization with other people that know this work. So I feel that I can feel that growing a little bit. You should. I'm just telling you, you you've you've done you put a lot of good in this world by your Thank wisdom you. and your heart. And your intelligence. I asked my shrink once. I was like, "Are you ever tired of hearing this?" Because I'm a little tired. Of it. <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, sometimes." <laughs> like, I mean, do you ever want to say to someone like, "I realize your dad was a jerk." Like <laughs> we've been talking about it for nine years. <laughs> like enough. Yeah, you know what I try to do. Um, the, I'll let the person talk about the past and what was me and their victimization. I. I <laughs> But uh, usually at about 20 minutes, I just go like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cut them. Cut, yeah. And most of the time, they'll do it, and then they'll, they'll, they'll focus. They need to have that discharge, so it's like poison. They need to get out of them. So. You're a great listener. Do, as, have any women ever come on to you in these sessions? Oh, yeah. Besides? Uh, you know, they, yes, in a subtle way. Um, a lot of them... Um, they, they don't come on to you sexually. A lot of them are coming on to you to make you a father. Oh. Um, so it becomes nebulous, and then they can get confused with that. Do you, have you ever had any, like, what about Bob? Wasn't that the movie, What About Bob? Like, people waiting out there and following you. And Oh. You remember that movie with... with, uh, with um, Bill Murray? Bill Murray, yeah. And, and, and 
Dreyfus. Yeah, that, that was very painful. Good movie, yeah. I, I, that. I actually walked out of that movie. Have you had people call you in the middle of the night and like you're saying, like people, celebrities think they can do anything like that. You know, the funny thing is, and when it comes to hours, most of my patients are very respectful. When the, the patients I've had that would call me in the middle of the night were back in New York when I had a much more, let's say, disturbed... Uh, oh, yeah, but I didn't finish... Oh, go ahead. No. That, that woman where I witnessed her oh, yeah. killing her mother on the instrument, she was indicted for, for murder, too, in Newark. And um, I, was, I, was, I was the only witness to the crime, so I was on the stand all day. And um, you know how much time she did? She, she was convicted of manslaughter in New Jersey. Well, it was, it's Newark, so yeah, yeah. good legal system there, but come on. <laughs> she, she did five weeks. Wow. Why, because she was an, a nutter? Yeah. They didn't want her. The prison system didn't want her. God bless. Five weeks. And, and you know, after she got out, she was much healthier. Mm. After she killed somebody. Okay. <laughs> so, so you 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 spoke about Hank Azaria, Saga. We talked about who who's 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 out as far as uh, people that come to you. I can't tell you that. Well, well, well you, you mentioned Chris Farley. Is that are we allowed to mention that? Is that on the record? Uh, yeah, that he's not with us. Yeah, I mean, I can't give you. I guess my only question would be like, was there a little feeling like? Because I've seen guys like Chris, like who are literally a star, and you're like, but you know that every star has, a, you know, like that it's only going to shine for so long, and it's going to just fucking evaporate. Like, was there a part of you that just said, this guy's not going to make it? It's too much. Um, yeah, there was. I'll tell you a funny thing, though, that I can't tell you about him. Which is, you know, I have this thing, there's type A people and there's type B people. Type A's, which most of us are, need to do the work, use the tools, go to meetings in order to succeed. Mm. Type B, they don't have to do that. They don't have to do anything and they're going to they're gonna be big stars. The problem is they have, they, mostly they don't live, you know. So anyway, Chris had, he knew, I had explained to him the difference between, and then, then he slipped again, he went away and one of his, Wherever he went to, I can't remember where it was. One of the other um, attendees in this drug program was was another star. And Chris is explaining to him. He says, "Well, we're part. We're type A's, which means we got to do the work (laughs) if we want to succeed." And and the other kid says to him. Well, is there any way we could become a part B? <laughs> right. How do we become Same a part here. B? What are we doing? I know. That's why comics. You know, I don't know who we can say we can't, but you seem to work with a lot of comics. Yeah, yeah. Because they're nuts. I'm a great audience. That's why you are. Right? <laughs> well, you have a good sense of humor. Uh, well, it's they tell this great story. I think Spade told it on Howard Stern about Chris Farley that he was dating this girl and. I think he was totally in love with her, and, and then she broke up with him because he was nuts, and she started dating someone else, and David Spade and Adam Sandler knew who she was dating, and Farley comes around, and he goes, you hear she found a new guy? And they go, yeah. And he goes, well, I know one thing. He might be, you know, more handsome. He might be uh, cooler than me, but there's no way he's funnier or richer than me. <laughs> and they look at him and go, she's dating Steve Martin. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It's like, there yeah. it is. Yeah, you, yeah. 
But do you, uh, I, and you talked about this a little on Marin, it's like, is that a big issue for funny people, comedians who come in? And, and I would say, I, I'm interested with medication as well, do they have a fear about... Does, Every one of them. Right, yeah. not being funny. Every one of them has that fear. And I've never seen it happen, by the way. Right. That they become unfunny if you help. Yeah, I've never seen it. Right. Because they, th- they think their comedy comes out of their pain and their, you know... What about with medicine? Have you seen like them take antidepressants and they yeah, make them a million unfunny? times. Again, I doesn't never, no, I never interfere. Seen Just fatter. <laughs> <laughs> How quickly are you to prescribe medicine? Uh, well, okay, these are great questions. I, I, um, I feel the tools that I have are the strongest so they can really turn around a person's inner state without meds mm. so unless it's unsafe I would prefer to tr- go as far as we can without medication and about half of them can do it the other half usually usually the other half the half that needs the medication usually is because they're not disciplined enough they can't motivate themselves enough while they're depressed or whatever and getting back to like tragic events like I, I know you would say take this because some people can't function they can't get up they can't right. go to work they can't take care of the family, this will get you through, That's right. right, and then... It'll give you enough energy to use the tools and use the skills, That's it. but the other, the other thing is important, I think we should mention, is this thing about dealing with death, isn't that what you want? Yeah. yeah. Um, the secret of that is you have to make the, per, the other person's death meaningful, and you can't make it meaningful in terms of them, they're, they're dead. You have to make it meaningful in terms of yourself. So, if, especially if it's somebody close to you that dies, mm-hmm. you want to ask yourself, what can that inspire in me? What can that motivate me to do that ordinarily I wouldn't do? What could, what, what, how could that um, motivate me to maybe try to do something that I haven't tried before? And it works very well. I believe in the dead. I mean, we talked a lot about when my mom died. It was like, yeah. talk to her, talk to her. And I was like, I am talking, I hear a voice. Is that me just manufacturing it? Or is it doesn't matter. You know, talk to her. And what did you say about, like, if, if I stop doing good, they want, they're up there trying to help us. Yes. And if, we're, if we stop progressing and being good, then. It's like a fuck you to them. Hmm. Now, what if someone's like, Phil? I'm an atheist. They're fucking dead. They're not talking and they don't hear me. And like, do you just then adjust to the way that client looks at life? Um, Here's what I do. What I tell them is, don't believe anything I'm saying, but do what I tell you to do. Don't believe it. Just do it and see what happens. Anytime a human being does something and it makes life more meaningful, they tend to keep doing it. Because that's what everybody's, you know, meaning is the force that's going to basically motivate you to keep going. Um, and is, is that the way you help? I think what's a powerful thing is living with unresolved issues. Is that yeah. not everything can have closure, right? That's right. And not only, not only can, can everything not have closure, if you close a couple things, something else, it's like whack-a-mole. Something else mm-hmm. is going to come along. There's no such thing as we've reached this point of nirvana. You know, that's why I say the three basic things you can't avoid are pain, uncertainty, and the need for constant work. So, you know, the whole culture is based on buy the right car, you know, live in the right building, whatever it is. 
right. have the right job, and then you're you're exonerated from this. Well, it's like Jim Carrey has that great quote of like, "I wish everyone would get everything they ever dreamed of." To only realize that it's not enough. I remember thinking about money. It's like money can't buy you happiness, but it could buy you a boat big enough to sail right up next to it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or what did Mark Marin say? Like they say money can't buy happiness, but I'd like to learn that firsthand. <laughs> making money. Does, um, um, uh, I know you're not allowed to do this, but you're not allowed to diagnose someone that's not your patient. Yeah. But give me a broad stroke of a Trump type. What, what are the oh, major uh, signs you're seeing? Okay. Yeah, this biphasic. Is, you should write a book about this. Explain about. Yeah, it's called a biphasic fantasy. Here's how it works. <laughs> someone, I won't use any names, um, but someone who's very narcissistic is an egomaniac. Whatever they they don't just want to succeed. That's not enough. They want to be God. Mm. Now to be God, you you can't just succeed. You have to succeed with everyone. We all right. Great. You have to succeed in the face of every person being your enemy. In other words, if it's me against the whole world and I win, then I'm truly God. Now here's what happens. So you win, you think you're God for a minute, then this sneaky voice says to you, you didn't really do that by yourself, you had help. And then, so, so at that point, he's gotta do it again. He, he's gotta alienate himself from the whole world and then win. See, that's why you saw him, he would do something good, and then immediately the next day, or even the next hour, he'd do something fucked up, and everybody would be against him again. So it's a, it's a, he's a junkie for, for it's, it's called the alienation phase. It's like everybody hates me, it's unfair, they're all against me, and then the conquest phase. But fuck them, I'm gonna win anyway. Mm. But once you win, you can't stay there. Because you'd have to believe in Santa Claus. You have to believe you did it yourself, which is impossible. So the secret of somebody like, like Trump is he thinks it's possible for him to do the impossible, and he has to continually prove it. He sort of has, <laughs> becoming president. He's sort of killing it, but nonetheless. <laughs> but, but you're saying, like, you, you, once you get up there and you go, I did this by... You're faced with like all these people help me. Okay, I got to get rid of him. I got to get rid of yeah, the mooch. Yeah. I got to shoot him. No, I gotta get rid of, right. You know? yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, right. it's a great lesson in this theory. I uh, interviewed Jeff Ross yesterday, and I said, "Let's assume in two years he's not president, and for some reason he allows a roast. What's your opening?" <laughs> <laughs> they, they did roast him. Well, I know, but I said, "What right. and now after everything that's happened?" I said, "What would you be your opening joke?" And Jeff Ross just said, "I'd look at him and say, Don, what what have you been up to?" <laughs> <laughs> um, Phil, thank you for this. This was this, great. Such yeah. a pleasure. This was a treat, Phil. Thank All you. All right, now you tell me we could do this again next week, please. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always available. <laughs> do you think you got like? Yeah, I mean, you'll be able to. You'll you'll tighten up some of the stuff. But, I mean, beauty. good applicable stuff for people out there that are that don't have you know whatever he charges or what you know like well the, the, at least it'll make them interested in a different way of looking at things you know I have people that are cheaper well know. I think too it's like we're, we're we have the same problems as people yes. that aren't celebrities right I mean for the, we do well yeah, yeah. You, I mean you, you tell me I mean you know you, you work with people that aren't and that are yeah I mean that's a whole other thing the fact that the, the fact that guys like you have the same problems as anybody else mm -hmm. is like a crushing blow to American culture. Right. 
because American culture has the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That's the magic. And that's, that's what says you're going to exonerate yourself. But I'm sorry you're not. <laughs> well, maybe for a day. That was it. That was Phil. Dude, Phil, thank you so much for doing that. What a pleasure. Uh, just in listening to it back, I got even more out of it than the first time. And Jonathan, love you, dude. Thank you for uh, hooking that up. You're the man. I really appreciate you. All right, enough of this. Ah, what are we going to get all uh, gloopity gloppity? Come on. All these feelings, all this sincerity, it's enough already. All right. Love you guys. Have a great week. I believe in you if no one doesn't. And if someone believes in you, just ask yourself, is that someone Josh Peck? Right? It's kind of cooler if it's, I don't know. Anyway, have a great week. Love you. Bye.